0: Hello friends, it's Bill Allen again. This is our Tuesday-Thursday Bible study through the Gospel of Matthew coming to you from partly cloudy and mostly sunshiny Tyler, Texas. Um, Glad to have you today. We've been going through the Book of Matthew on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons at uh, 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time and uh, appreciate so many of you who have joined along with us. I see some of our regulars already uh, uh, signing on. Uh, Nice to see our friends, Lenny and Joe, coming to us from Arlington, and Jerry and Beverly from Canton that I just heard today. First Monday is back on for the first weekend of June. And uh, so that's a, a, a great thing. I guess that that would probably be the last weekend of May because June 1st is on a Monday. Uh, So I know the social distancing guidelines will be in effect, but uh, that is uh, nice to see that uh, getting started again and a lot of our community and a lot of our businesses and churches and uh, uh, job sites uh, being uh, reopening gradually here in Texas. The governor will make another announcement on Monday and so we continue to be very conscious of the things that are that are going on and ask the Lord's blessing and wisdom on all of our authorities, those uh, nationally and statewide and and in our communities and throughout the world as well. So that as we uh, continue to fight through this uh, novel coronavirus pandemic, that we'll be able to do that wisely and effectively. And, uh, And that's our prayer and that's our goal. Nice to know that Eric and Cindy are following along with us as well. My buddy Lonnie Brown, And I know there'll be uh, many others that will watch this live, perhaps come in a little bit later, or others that will uh, watch it uh, after it's uh, on my page in archives and also on our uh, West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page as well. And there's also a link to all of these on our uh, website, westirwin.com. Uh, you'll go on to the uh, live streaming uh, link. You'll see a social media and resources link. <clears throat> click on that or scroll over that and then click on the live streaming uh, site and then scroll down a little bit and you'll see a video archives uh, click here spot. And that's where uh, all, all of our previous lessons are, that uh, a lot of our sermons, uh, worship, the most recent worship service and these uh, services, these studies uh, such as. Uh, this study in Matthew, my good buddy Myron Bruce uh, signing on, my old friend and preacher friend, great education minister, uh, Mike Monroe and Marion Robert Lee and so many others that will sign on. So let's get to it. Um, We've been through 18 chapters in Matthew uh, throughout the last couple of months, actually the last uh, month or two, and the goal is to cover about two chapters uh, each study on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m., and, um, and so that's what we're trying to do if we continue on that pace or so, uh, be finishing up the book of Matthew at the end of this month, at the end of May. And so, and so that's my goal. Uh, today will be a challenge because uh, we're facing uh, some really uh, very important and very difficult uh, teaching in Matthew 19 and in Matthew 20. Um, Jesus covers some very uh, difficult subjects uh, that were in effect and difficult in his time in the first century. They were difficult in Moses' time, um, 2,000 years or about uh, really 1,500 years uh, before uh, Jesus uh, showed up on the scene and, um, and were certainly there in the days of the early church after Jesus had ascended and have been uh, that way throughout history, including today. Uh, And so I want us to get right to it. Uh, The first uh, passage begins in in Matthew chapter 19 uh, and concerns uh, teaching about the sanctity uh, of marriage. Uh, This is a very difficult and hot topic. It's a hot topic still. It was a hot topic in Moses' day because the law uh, teaches about it. Um, It was a hot topic in the days of the prophets, such as Malachi Um, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Uh, It was a a hot topic in the days of uh, the New Testament, and it's certainly a difficult subject uh, even today. A little bit of personal uh, story. I am the adult child of a divorced uh, marriage. My parents were divorced uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, after being married 20 years, it was a second marriage for my mom. Her first husband uh, passed away in a boating accident and then she married uh, my dad. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so um, I was uh, 15, 16 years old, uh, I guess, almost 16 years old when they divorced um, in 1973. And, and so I, I understand firsthand uh, how difficult uh, this subject is and this topic is. And I understand as being married now for 43 years to the wonderful and amazing and lovely and beautiful and strong and patient <laughs> and faithful uh, Joyce Long, uh, Alan, um, we understand also uh, the stresses that happen in a relationship over time. And, um, and so there's, I, I want to acknowledge all of those things first of all and to acknowledge that uh, that marriage is a calling as we're gonna see in just a few moments. And that uh, because this is God's way and God believes and practices and wants us to believe and practice the sanctity of marriage and hold that in the highest of value, uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, difficulties and struggles. And so um, let's get right to it as we talk about this in the first 12 verses of Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus had broached this subject already in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 uh, verses 31 and 32 as he was speaking about several things that the law had said and, um, and already has given us a very strong and high view uh, of marriage. And the significant thing for me here in Matthew chapter 19 is that, of course, it's inspired scripture, um, but also what Jesus does. Uh, Jesus goes back to creation. Uh, Jesus goes back to the Garden of Eden. He goes back to God creating them male and female and uh, saying that a man uh, would leave his father and mother and would cleave to his wife. Um, God takes it very seriously. And and so we're going to share some comments about that uh, and then uh, move on. And let me just say that if you'd like some more information or have some other questions as we go, uh, then feel free to uh, send me a Facebook message, and that way we can have a private discussion about it if you like, or you can email me Bill Allen at westirwin, E-R-W-I-N, uh, dot org, um, and I will be glad to uh, talk with you, to pray with you, to study with you, to hear your input uh, as well. Um, okay, so Matthew 19. First of all, we see the context of this, and let's let's just read through the whole passage. And then we'll kind of go back through it. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, verse 3, came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, some very strong words and a very difficult teaching and a very unpopular teaching in our culture today. And I want to tell you it was just as unpopular in the first century, just as the disciples' question uh, asks Uh, And so let's go through this. And uh, again, if you have questions or comments about this and want to chat more, uh, then feel free to send me a Facebook message and I'll be glad uh, to uh, communicate with you. Um, We first of all see the context of the question. The context of the question is the religious leaders, like so many of the questions that Jesus got, uh, these these questions were uh, meant to harm him. They were meant to test him and to trap him. Uh, over and over again, we see that. There were some, I think, that were sincere, uh, but many of them were not. This one, as Matthew records it, is is not. They're trying to test him, trying to trap him. And again, they're trying to uh, figure out a way to get him to either go against the people and their needs and, and the compassion and the mercy that he has shown them or to go against the law. Um, and Jesus, time and time again, proves that it's not a choice between Uh, mercy or the law. It's not a choice between uh, grace or truth. Jesus affirms both constantly. John says this in the beginning of his gospel in John 1, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And that's relative to this question about marriage and divorce and remarriage and the sanctity of marriage overall. Um, Which leads us to a lot of other questions. What about homosexuality? A marriage between same sexes is legal in this country. Uh, What about uh, polygamy? What about a uh, two or three or four people that agree to uh, be considered uh, faithful and responsible uh, and monogamous uh, in their marriage and they want to find a way to be legally married in a group context? Um, uh, Those are all all questions that our society is asking uh, now and uh, and that our government has made some decisions about and so my my concern is to go back to scripture and to ask myself and to ask us all what what does Jesus have to say about it what does the Bible have to say about it because that's what's I think that's the only objective inspired authoritative word from God that we can have and so, yes, we approach passages like this humbly. We recognize that we're uh, a, a product of our environment. I'm, a, I'm an adult child of a divorced couple, as I told you. And, um, and so, I you know, that affects some of my understanding. Uh, I've been married for a long, long time to a wonderful wife, and that affects uh, my uh, outlook. And all of those experiences have something to say about it. But ultimately, we have to go back to scripture. Ultimately, we have to go back to the word of God and try to understand it as best we can, and then be willing to obey it, uh, be willing to live according to it. And it's not, you know, I've heard it said before on marriage and divorce and remarriage, and I've heard it said on um, sexual morality as far as marriage being between a man and a woman and, and not in a homosexual real, uh, relationship or not in a uh, polygamous relationship. Uh, You know, I've heard it said that, well, Jesus really didn't say anything about that. Well, Jesus does say something about that. He does right here in Matthew chapter 19, uh, as we have seen. And granted, the context is difficult because they're trying to trap him, but the response of Jesus is still uh, the gospel. It's still uh, the will and the word uh, of God. So they ask him that question, can you divorce your spouse for any and every reason? And Jesus says, no, no, you can't. Uh, haven't you read, and again, he goes back to Genesis, he goes back to creation, he goes further back than the law of Moses, he goes back to the very beginning. Uh, Haven't you read Matthew 19, verse four, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and I think that's significant, I I think that's, um, again, that goes back to the very beginning, that goes back to the vision that Jesus, that God had for marriage from the start, Uh, and in creation uh he recognized that a man a male it was not it was not perfect it was not complete it was not good for him to be alone he needed a helper suitable for him someone that would be able to uh be helpful to each other um and that's when woman was created because she came out of the man and uh and then Jesus quotes what was said For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, Matthew 19, verse 5, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The sexual relationship is not something that some man thought of thousands of years ago. It was something that God ordained from the very start. God designed us for that, and it's a part of an intimate and loving relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. That's been that way from the start, and it's that way Still, it, there was never a time when it wasn't that way as far as the biblical record is concerned and for the most part, um, the historical record as far as the church has been concerned as, as far as people of faith in God have been concerned. Um, our society and our culture has sought to change that and the Bible hasn't, hasn't changed. It's, it's sometimes hard to understand and to interpret and apply Uh, But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it or that we can't do it. Um, Jesus takes them back to the garden. He takes them back to creation. And he says, God created them male and female. God said a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two of them would become one flesh. In the eyes of God, the sexual relationship is a beautiful thing. It's something that's meant for procreation, it's something that's meant for pleasure according to 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll mention that passage a little bit later. And so Jesus says in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's God's vision, that's God's desire, that's God's will for marriage from the start. But the discussion again goes on. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. That was the law under Moses, uh, and the law that the people of the Jews of Jesus' day were living by. Jesus replied in verse eight: Moses permitted you to to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And guess what? People's hearts are still hard. In other words, they're not always faithful to the marriage relationship as a husband and as a wife. So many wonderful things spoken about. Uh, the marriage relationship in passages such as Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are told to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Um, Jesus understands that to be giving yourself uh, for your bride. And as we see Jesus as um, the the church being the bride of Christ, Jesus gave his life for us. And he calls on husbands to do that uh, today. Uh, as well. Um, And so Jesus goes on, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, Verse nine, Uh, that's a hard, hard saying. And the disciples get it because then they respond with, well, that's a really high standard. I'm not sure anybody can do that. And that's when Jesus comments beginning in verse 11 and he says, look, you're right. Not everybody can do that. And so if the calling is to be single then, and celibate, then stay single, Jesus. That's what he means by that term eunuch, which is just someone that uh, either by physical means or just by uh, a mental and emotional decision has decided to live celibate and to not have uh, a sexual relationship. Uh, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says, look, if you're married and a servant of the church and the Lord, it's, it's going gonna, gonna to be a little harder for you because you have responsibilities as a spouse, as a husband or a wife, and you need to be faithful to those responsibilities. And he says, if you can be single and remain pure, which is apparently what Paul the apostle did, uh, he says, "Then, then do that, and you'll have more time and more uh, energy and availability and resources to give to the work of the church. But if your calling is to be married, then marry." First Corinthians seven is a is not a, a, a book that's written to keep people from being married, in my view. In that chapter in First Corinthians seven, it's meant to encourage those who who can't remain celibate and who desire to be married, to be married in the Lord, which means according to the Lord's. Uh, will, and uh, and so there's a a lot of questions that that this raises a, a lot of questions. Jesus makes an ins- exception here in Matthew 19, except for the case of sexual immorality. If it's there's no sexual immorality, then remain married. And again, that is that I believe that's what God wants. However, I also believe again there are exceptions. There are difficult situations, and how do you know that, Bill? Well, because 1 Corinthians 7 names some of those. As Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he seems to mention and to maintain that sometimes it's there, the relationship, the marriage is, is going to dissolve and there's nothing you can do about it. And so he says, well, in that case, then obviously divorce is inevitable. I've known some people, wonderful Christian people who have uh, been through divorce and it's a, it's a tragedy. Uh, It's something that's so difficult that uh, it's not God's vision at all, and it's not easy for anybody, for the spouses, for the children, for the parents, for the friends, for the church. It's hard on everybody. I wish it on nobody. Um, And and 1 Corinthians 7 acknowledges that. Jesus acknowledges that here. Uh, Moses acknowledges that in the law. The prophets acknowledge that in places like uh, the book of Malachi in Malachi chapter 2 as he condemns the Jews of his day uh, because they had forsaken the covenant of marriage and had left the wife of their, of their youth. Um, it, it, there are so many different um, instances and situations and difficulties. And so I think we have to be really careful uh, we can look at Matthew 19 and some have, have done this and they have looked at that and they have taken a strong stand and drawn a, a very clear line and said, well, if there's no sexual immorality, then you can't divorce. That's what Jesus said. Let me tell you how that why that breaks down because in two other passages that where the gospel writers, Mark and Luke, talk about this very uh, discussion uh, in Mark chapter 10, verses one through 12, and in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, they say something very similar, except they don't even give the exception for adultery or sexual immorality. Um, and so if you're going to say, well, we that's the only one, because Matthew says it's the only one, well, Mark and Luke don't even include that one. So, So what are you gonna do with that? What are we going to do with that? I believe as the church, as Christian leaders, I believe that we're called to minister to marriages, to help make them as strong as they can be. I believe that we are to help when marriages are struggling and to try to save them, to do everything in the world possible uh, to get them through the difficult times. And, and, but I believe also that when that's, that marriage ends, then we are called to minister even to the divorcing and to the divorced. There are no easy answers here. Uh, there are no easy, you can't just turn to a scripture and say, see there, this is the case in every single time. I can tell you that the case in every single time is that God is calling husbands and wives to be faithful to each other and to do the right thing. But just as it was in the true of, in the days of Moses' day, it's true today. Our hearts are hard sometimes. We don't do right. We're not faithful. Uh, we we uh, make it uh, difficult for uh, the marriage to continue. I've I've talked uh, with women who were in abusive relationships in my work on the board uh, with uh, women's shelters in Arlington and in Fort Worth and Tarrant County. And it's a tragedy. And, and they have a hard, hard time with that because they, you know, they have been told at times, and usually by their abuser, that the Bible tells them that't they can't, they can't divorce because divorce is a sin, and if they leave their husband when he hasn't been unfaithful to them sexually, that they're sinning. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. I think a woman has to make that call and receive some, some good guidance from loving people who believe in the Bible and who also uh, are willing to help them through this time. And it may very well be that that marriage has to end. And if it does, it's not that woman's fault. Granted, there's no innocent parties when a marriage dissolves. Uh, you can point to someone and say they did this, but every marriage that's had trouble that I've been aware of, Uh, there was plenty of blame to go around. Now, maybe somebody was uh, the one who made it impossible for the marriage to continue, but we are sinful creatures, and we look in our relationships, and we say, you know, yeah, there are some things that I could have done uh, differently. That doesn't justify your partner for uh, uh, ending the marriage, and and there's no justification for physical Uh, emotional, or sexual abuse. Let me say that again. There is no, there is no justification for physical, uh, verbal, emotional, or sexual abuse. None. Zero. That is a sin and there's no justifying it. I don't care what the circumstances are. It is wrong. It is wrong and God uh, will punish those who uh, continue in that lifestyle. And that makes it impossible for a marriage uh, to continue in most, almost all circumstances. And it's a huge tragedy. So I think we have to, we have to understand that uh, this, these are complicated things we're talking about today, very complicated. Uh, and so we have to try to save that marriage. And if, uh, if it, it is impossible for uh, those uh, those two spouses to commit to God's vision, for uh, saving this marriage, granted they're going to be imperfect, but they're committed to uh, being on that path. If they can at least do that, then the marriage can be saved. But if someone is rebellious and just refuses uh, to to be the person and the spouse that God has called them to be, it makes it very, very difficult uh, for the other spouse to continue. I don't want I don't want you to think that. In just a, a 15 or 20 minutes, Bill has all the answers on marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's far from the case. And so I encourage you to do further study and prayer and talk to others and read. There's so many good things that are out there. Uh, on this subject, uh, Jerry Jones, who does, uh, Jerry and Lynn are wonderful people and who do uh, a marriage uh, and relationships uh, matters uh, program. They He's written a book on that. and i You know I recommend you uh take a look at things like that and consider those things. Um, I believe that the, the 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 vision that God has for marriage is a man and a woman as husband and wife until death do we part. I think that's God's vision, and uh, that doesn't mean there's not going to be hard times and that not doesn't mean there's not going to be difficult things to work through, but that is God's vision, and that's what we're called to do. Again, I also believe that we have to be compassionate towards those who are suffering and struggling with that. I've known um, wonderful people who have had marriages end in divorce and who have made a commitment that they would never remarry, and that's their, uh, that's their prerogative. I think that's the conviction that they've come to. I've also known some great and wonderful people uh, who have seen their marriage uh, dissolve uh, because of the unfaithfulness of a spouse, whether it's sexual or other, and the marriage has ended, and then they have become um, uh, close to another person and have remarried. My my call, my belief, Scripture's call to you is to be. If you're in a marriage right now, then uh, between a man and a woman, then the the call of God is for you to be the the best spouse that you can be and have the best marriage that you can be, uh, right now, um, and that is. Um, And I I believe that's uh, scripture's call. I think the only reason I would tell someone to divorce uh, is, uh, other than some of the issues that we've talked about, such as abuse, if that's the ultimate uh, uh, case um, option, then the only other times when I would counsel someone to divorce because their marriage is wrong in the eyes of God is if they're in a homosexual marriage or if they're in a polygamous marriage. Um, I don't think those are grounded in Scripture at all. I think the word for those is sin. I know our culture doesn't recognize that, but that's been the teaching of Scripture, and that's been the teaching of Scripture from the start, from the Garden of Eden, from the creation of man and woman and humanity. Uh, We saw that in the law. Uh, The law condemns it in Leviticus chapter 20. Before we even get to the law, uh, we We read that horrible story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis uh, chapters eighteen and nineteen, and it gives us a glimpse of the horror and the tragedy and and how God feels uh, about the sanctity uh, of marriage. Um, you turn to the New Testament in Romans one uh, those who are not even uh, Jews or Christians are condemned if they are involved in homosexual relationships. Romans one verses 18 through 32. I thought I would read this passage from First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy one beginning at verse eight. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And again, this is in the New Testament in First Timothy one. Verse nine, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, the healthy teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Um, Scripture has other lists of sins like that, such as in Galatians chapter five, uh, verses 19-19. Uh, through twenty one the works of the flesh, such as in first Corinthians six verses nine and ten um, and and so I think it's important for us to make that make that clear that 's not popular in our culture it 's uh, difficult. Uh, we all have uh, friends and family members who uh, disagree with that and who do not live out that conviction, and we 're going to love them and we 're going to care about them and we 're going to wish and pray only the best for them. Um, but we're going to stand by what the Word of God says. Um, Jesus transcends culture. It's not a cultural thing. Uh, it goes back to creation. I believe our culture is set on, um, on, on not abiding by that. Uh, I think the next steps that we'll see, just as we have seen a push towards um, homosexual marriage, Uh, that we'll see a big push on making uh, polygamous marriages legal as well. And if you turn away from the teaching of Scripture, then what authority do you have to say that's not right? If you have consenting adults, if they are all willing to commit uh, to each other, to be monogamous in their relationship, to say we love each other, we want to live together as husbands and wives, and we're going to be faithful to each other, then why... Why shouldn't the law recognize that if the law can recognize a marriage between two men or two women? Uh, Because the only reason that you can say that they can't is because the teaching of scripture. Um, And if you throw that out, if you say that doesn't count, that doesn't apply, uh, then you've opened everything else up as well. Um, I believe that the teaching of scripture still applies. And I realize we all obey it imperfectly, thankful to, the, to our great God who has given us salvation through the blood of Christ. But it doesn't give us permission to remain on a path that he has condemned, uh, that he has called us out of. Um, and, and the scripture is very real in uh, affirming that. One more scripture uh, before we <clears throat> go on, um, thankfully <laughs> for Bill. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10, first of all, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, this is New Testament. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And and we could say and 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 other things that are like that, just as he did in First Timothy one, anything other any, anything else that doesn't conform to the healthy teaching of the gospel of Christ. But the good news of the gospel is seen in this passage in First Corinthians six, in the very next verse, verse eleven. And that is what some of you were. Paul tells the church at Corinth, You were all those things. And I can tell you that in our church today, We have all of those things. We have people who have all of those things in their past. Uh, And I've known Christians and churches who have struggled with all of those things. Um, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I don't think that we can say, yeah, but that's just how God made me. God wired me that way. God created me that way. Well, Maybe God created you with a, a certain same-sex attraction. There's no sin in temptation. Uh, others are um, very much tempted to, uh, to lie and not tell the truth. And, and there are others who say, I'm not tempted at all. I'll, I, no matter what the cost, I'm gonna tell the truth. I hate liars and I can't imagine not telling the truth. Well, that's, others are more tempted, but that doesn't make it right for them. Um, it doesn't make it right for them. We're going to read a passage in just a moment on materialism that Americans struggle with no matter what situation we're in. Um, and, and because we're tempted with that, it doesn't give us permission to, uh, to, to put money on the throne of our hearts instead of God. It just says that's where Satan is going to attack us. That's where he's going to try to get us. Uh, and, uh, and, and Satan threw everything at Jesus as well. Um, The great news of the gospel is we can be forgiven, we can be washed in the blood of Christ, and God will help us, and the church will help us, and his word will help us, his spirit will help us to live faithfully, maybe not perfectly, uh, not perfectly, uh, but faithfully. And I think as Christians, we have to remember we all have things that we struggle with. We all have uh, difficulties that that are temptations for us, and we need each other, we need the church, to gather around us and to help us to be obedient to God, because I, it seems to me like he has given us his word and his will, and it seems to me because he's done that 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 we should try to obey it. Uh, Jesus said several times, including three times within just a short uh, period of, of, of verses in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not a question of love versus obedience. Um, We're called to love God, first of all. That means obeying his will. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means we have compassion for each other, even those that we heartily disagree with. Uh, We still have compassion and consideration and respect and, yes, love, because that's the way Jesus has treated us. Um, Again, if you need to talk some more with me about that, please feel free to uh, get in touch with me, and we can have that uh, discussion. Uh, the next passage in, um, in Matthew chapter 19 is uh, verses 13 through 15, where it's another one of those passages where Jesus deals with the kids. Uh, the people brought their kids to Jesus. They wanted him to bless them. They wanted them to be able to interact with Jesus. And the disciples, of course, tried to shoo him away. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let them come. Let them come. Because this is the way the kingdom of heaven is, like these kids. Not like you guys, not like you religious leaders, not like you disciples right now who are trying to chase them off, Um, but rather this is uh, what is right uh, in the eyes of God. Uh, And so he places his hands on them and blesses them and then goes on uh, from there. We've seen Jesus interact with children um, in Matthew before and just in the previous chapter in chapter 18. And then this story of the rich young ruler. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 16 of Matthew 19, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, "Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life?" Well, that sounds good, uh, but as we read further, we realize that this man is kind of like that man that came to Jesus in Luke uh, 10 and said, "What's what's what are the, what's the greatest commandment?" And Jesus said, "To love God and to love your neighbor as self." and uh, and the man sought to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus the question that, that really is the motivation for the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. He asked him, well, just who is my neighbor? And his question there in Luke 10 is, who do I have to love? Because I don't want to have to love everybody. There's some people that I don't want to love. And Jesus says that's the wrong question. Uh, it's not a question of who do you have to love. The answer to that question is everybody. Uh, but the question is, what is the loving thing for me to do? That's what the question, the right question would have been. And that's the question that Jesus answers in the story of the Good Samaritan. Here, this man says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, you know, says, well, there's, I don't know why you're calling me good. There's only one who is good. And of course, Jesus was the son of God. Uh, And he says, if you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones, again, which ones do I have to obey to get in, to crawl in under the net, under the tent? Uh, Jesus replied in verse 18, "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself." All these I have kept," the young man said, and and that's us, you know. For the most part, we're there. Woohoo! Jesus didn't say the one that I struggle with. Yes, I'm in. Hooray, hooray, hooray! Um, and that's kind of what he was thinking. But he went on. He didn't stop there, and he said, "Okay." Maybe not a complete list, I get that. Uh, I've done all these things, I don't struggle with those things. What what one thing do I lack? And before Jesus says these words uh, in Matthew 19, uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to respond with the good Samaritan um, to a similar question, but in Mark chapter 10, it, we hear Mark's version of this story, and what Mark puts in right here at verse 21 is this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Here was a man who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus rattled off some of the commandments and the man said, hey, done. I'm, I'm, I'm done all those things. Am I still lacking something? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he told him the one thing, the one thing that would cause him to leave. And it involved money. All these I have kept, verse 20 of Matthew 19 says, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And I think it wasn't just because he had great wealth. It's because he didn't want to get rid of it. Jesus didn't have to tell him that, and I don't think Jesus tells us that. Jesus wants to be on the throne of our hearts and not the almighty dollar, and if if we're struggling with that, then, then we need to get rid of some of that, and we need to find a way uh, to work through that, and it doesn't mean that you have a lot. You can have very little and still uh, be so consumed uh, with material things that it has taken the place of God in your life, and Jesus won't have it. He just won't have it. Whatever it is that's keeping him off the throne in your heart, he will say, "Get rid of it." I, I'm not going to share the throne in your heart with anybody or anything. Uh, that's just the way Jesus is. And again, that's not very popular in a culture like 21st century America, that has put diversity and tolerance and all of those things that are wonderful on their own, uh, but that are servants and not masters. And we've made them the master. And we have created things to put in the throne on our hearts, in our hearts that uh, have no place being there. They're good, they, they're good things, but they're, they're good servants, but they're horrible masters. And Jesus says, I won't, I won't share the throne of your heart with anything or with anybody. And this man, that was what was on the throne is in his heart. And so Jesus told him the one thing that would make him unhappy Uh, The one thing that would make him feel bad. (laughs) And in our culture today, that's the biggest sin of all. Uh, No, God just wants me to be happy. God doesn't want me to feel bad. Well, if you're involved in sin, then God doesn't want you to be happy. If you're involved in sin, then God doesn't want you to feel good. If it's going to take that to get you to leave your life of sin and come and put Jesus on the throne in your heart, then, then that's, that's what Jesus wants, even more than your happiness at this moment in this life right now. What he's most concerned with, my dear friend, is you're living eternally with him in heaven. Your soul will live for eternity. And, and Jesus wants that presence with him uh, and not to be uh, destroyed. And so, yes, that takes priority. Priority even over your happiness at this very moment. And we see that in the life of Jesus himself. It didn't make him happy. It didn't make him feel good when he was betrayed by uh, Judas. It didn't make him happy. It didn't make him feel good when Peter and all the apostles left him. It certainly didn't make him happy and didn't feel good to be beaten like he was by the Jews and the Romans, to be nailed to a cross, um, to struggle for each breath like he did. That wasn't something that he wanted to do, he prayed that the father would find some other way but but the answer was no, you you're going to have to endure this because this is not just about you. this is about the people that you will save through this. And so Jesus very submissively, very obediently allowed himself um, to be uh, not just miserable but to be in great pain and to ultimately have his life taken for you. And for me, that's how important obeying the will of the Father was to Jesus. And it needs to be that important um, to us as well uh, to seek to do the Father's will. As Matthew 6, verse 33 said, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Even above our own sexual uh, pleasure, yes. Um, Even above our own material uh, needs and happiness, Yes. And this is probably the hardest one for we Americans because we don't, we we like our stuff. We like our things. Uh, This coronavirus has really, you know, reminded us that those things are temporary. Jesus told us that in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he reminded us that we shouldn't um, base our heart and our soul and our life on those things that can be taken away, that can be destroyed by thieves, by uh, deterioration. Um, but to actually consider the treasures in heaven, the ones that we put uh, as priority in our lives. Um, and, And that's what he's telling this man. That's what he's telling this man. And unfortunately, the man went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. And so Jesus comments on it in verse 23. Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that sounds ridiculous, and I think Jesus meant it to sound ridiculous. And I've heard people say, oh, no, there's this passage in the, old, uh, in the uh, Middle East where there's a, uh, something they call the eye of the needle, and it's hard for a camel to get through. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what Jesus is talking about. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is this is hard. This is hard. It's hard if you have a lot to be willing to part with those things to help others and to make sure that God is on the throne in in your heart. Um, Jesus, again, had talked about this in Matthew 6. Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, to command those who are rich in this world not to do what Jesus commanded this man, which was sell everything and give it uh, to the poor and, and follow him, but rather he says to not hold on to it with a tight grip but to hold on to it, have it in your hand, that's fine, but be willing to share, uh, so that your trust can be seen clearly to be in the God who provides, not in the things that, that God provides. And I think that's what Jesus was going at with this man. That's what he, Paul instructs Timothy to tell his people in the first century in Ephesus, and that's what uh, God calls on us to do today in a country that is very, very blessed financially and materially even still in the midst of a pandemic uh, and yet Jesus says look uh, that's that's not going to save you <laughs> all those things that you have um, it, it can't forgive a single sin but I can Jesus says um, and so the disciples go on and say how who who can who can do these things who can have a a, a lifelong marriage. Who can, who can be willing to uh, commit uh, to being faithful to God uh, physically and sexually? Who can, who can commit to being faithful to God with our material things? Uh, to be willing to recognize that they are the, just that. They are things that God has provided for us to help us and to provide for us and those that we love. But also to allow us to be able to help provide for others who are in need. Um, Who can do this? Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 26, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. These things can't, we can't do them if all we're relying on is our physical nature. Um, What Jesus says is we have to rely on our God. And Peter responds and tells him in verse 27, we've left everything to follow you. And that's when Jesus promises him and the other disciples and us today, everything, whatever it is that you have left, whatever it is that you have put aside, whatever it is that you have sacrificed, that you have denied yourself of, to follow me and to make me your, not just your Savior, but your Lord and Master, um, you'll be okay. It'll be provided for. Just as he says in Matthew 6, here he says, uh, you'll receive everything you need and more. Remember what he tells uh, told us in Matthew 16, also in Luke 9, if you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, you've got to deny yourself, not fulfill every whim and desire. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Um, we can sugarcoat that all we want, but it, it doesn't change that that's what Jesus calls us to do because he will not take second place to anything. Um, he wants the throne of our heart, and he will settle for nothing uh, less. Um, okay, so before uh, the the uh, rooster crows here and the clock goes off and Bill turns into a pumpkin at 5 p.m. Central Time, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 20, because I think it, it is uh, connected with everything uh, that we read about in chapter 19. Matthew 20 is probably the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables for Americans. Americans. Why is that? Well, he says in Matthew 20, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went and saw others and did the same with them, told them, I'll pay you what is right at the end of the day. Then he went out again at noon and then again at five. Um, And so he hired them all at different times of the day, told them he would pay them what was right. Told the ones in the morning, uh, one denarius, which was about a day's wage. And then when evening came, he said to the foreman, give everybody their wages. And he started with the ones that were last hired, and he gave them one denarius. And he went through all of those that had been hired throughout the day, one denarius. And he gets to the ones who had worked all day in the morning, and he gave them one denarius. So picture, for example, uh, you're working on a project at home, and you need some help, you need some workers. And so you go out to the place on the corner, somewhere in town where men gather, women gather too, because they need to work, they need to work. And and so you get a few laborers and it's seven in the morning and you tell them, hey, look, I'm gonna, I'll, I need your help. I, I tell you what, I'll give you each a $100 a day. $100 if you'll work for me all day today. It's, work's gonna be hard, but if you'll work for me all day, I'll give you a $100. And they say, sure. And so you take them, well, you realize about, about uh, uh, 10 in the morning that you're not gonna have enough. So you go out and you get some more, and you say, hey, if you'll work for me today, I'll pay you what's fair. And you do that again at noon and, and at three, and then at five, you have a couple hours of daylight left, so you go and you hire some more, and you say, hey, look, if you'll work for me till dark, I'll pay you what's fair. And then at the end of the day, you start paying everybody. And the ones that were just worked a couple hours, you give them 100 bucks. And the ones that had worked since three, a hundred bucks. Since noon, a hundred bucks. Since 10, a hundred bucks. And the ones who had worked all day, since from dawn to dusk, you give them a hundred bucks. And what are they gonna do? They are gonna say, that's not fair. And guess what? It's not. It's not fair. If you're looking for fair, when it comes to wages, you're looking at the wrong place if you're looking to Jesus, because he doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace isn't fair. Well, the passage continues on. Uh, Verse 13, Jesus answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, I think the point of this parable is in verses 14 and 15, and I think the lesson is in that last verse, verse 16. And it's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son and the loving father, the prodigal son's Because the older brother, he was very hacked at his dad for being forgiving and restoring his younger brother. But the father said, hey, look, everything I have is yours. If you want it, just say the word. But it's right for me to forgive this son. It's right for us to celebrate his return. Uh, Are we that older brother sitting on the porch? Because are we the ones who have been at work all day? Oh, I've denied myself. I've tried to live a moral life. I haven't done the bad things. I've tried to do all the good things all my life. God, aren't you going to give me something special? And God says, well, yeah, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you eternity, eternal life, your presence with me. But listen, God, I've been more faithful to you than those other guys over there. You're not going to save them too, are you? Well, yeah, they're here. I did. But wait, they they're Johnny-come-latelys. They are johnny come lately. they have not done nearly as much as I've done. I've been much more faithful. I've done much more. I've baptized more people. I've sacrificed more things. I have taken all those immoral, horrible things out of my life that they've done, and, I, and I've gone to church all the time, and I've given all of my money, and how, how, can, you, how can you save them too? And, and what Jesus says in this parable is what God will say to us then. He's gonna say, look, don't I, I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that. Don't I have the right to give my grace to whoever I want? But the piercing question of this passage is that last part of verse 15, or are you envious because I am generous? Ouch. Ouch. God gets us with that one. And he says, "Look, I look Bill, I know you've you've sacrificed a lot. I know you've You've been in full-time ministry for 40 years. I know you've, you've tried to do your best. I know all those things. But listen, I, I, I want to be generous with my grace, and you should want that too. Uh, I hope and pray that uh, and kind of expect that when we get to heaven, we're gonna be a little bit surprised about some of the people that aren't there and a little bit surprised about some of the people that are. And guess what? It's not gonna matter because we're all there because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all there because God was generous with his grace. Uh, and that's, that's the only thing that matters. And that's the lesson of the parable. The last will be first and the first will be last. Look, if you want fairness, then you know, go to the bank. Um, if you want fairness, go to the courts. But if you want fairness with God, Romans 6 verse 23 tells us exactly what that looks like. The wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned, we're all sinners. Compared to a holy and righteous God, we have no chance if we get what we deserve, if we get what's right. But if we get grace, it won't be fair. Because it took the death of a perfect son of God to take the stripes that were meant for me, to have those nails that were meant for me, to die on that cross that was meant for me. But because of God's great love for us, he has given us that. He has demonstrated his great grace. And we need to be sure that we're in the party, in the house, celebrating with the family over the return of that younger brother and not sitting on the porch pouting because he was forgiven. We need to be sure that when those people come in, that maybe they didn't work as long as we did, but they come in and the the owner gives them exactly the same pay that he's giving us. The way Paul puts it in the book of Romans is rejoice with those who rejoice. I think sometimes it's easier for us to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, you need to love your enemies. You need to pray for them. Not, and, I, and I don't think Jesus is saying pray that they'll get hit by a truck. I think when we pray for our enemies, we pray that God will bring good things for them, that their lives will be blessed, uh, that they'll find joy in this life and eternity in the life to come. Um, and that's what Jesus is calling us to do here, uh, to be thankful and to be grateful for the blessings that we have received and to be grateful and thankful and even joyful um, when others receive that same blessing. We'll, uh, we'll finish with these last two stories in, um, in Matthew 20 or at least uh, mention them and maybe we'll refer to them the next time. Uh, but Jesus reminds his disciples in Matthew 20, uh, beginning at verse 17, what he seems like. He just keeps telling them over and over again, look, you're, I know you think I'm the son of God and you're right, but let me tell you what that means. That means I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be denied. I'm going to be accused and I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And that blew their minds as we saw with Peter before, because that's not what they expected. What they expected is for everybody to fall down and worship him and one day that'll happen. But for that to happen, um, for those to be able to live eternally with him, Jesus had to give himself. And then he says, that's what you need to do too. And in Matthew chapter 20, one of those great stories beginning at verse 20, James and John, remember the sons of Zebedee, uh, James who would ultimately be the first apostle killed, in the cause of Christ, they, James and John and their mom go to Jesus and they say, we want the best seats in the house when you come in your kingdom. <laughs> and Jesus questions them in Matthew 20 uh, and in verse 22, are you serious? Do you know what this means? Can you, can you drink the cup that I will drink? And they said, yeah, we can. And he says, well, you know, you will. James will be the first apostle killed for the faith by Herod in, in Acts 12. John will live a long life and suffer a lot and ultimately be exiled on an island at Patmos. Um, And so Jesus says, well, maybe you will, but that's not for me to say. And I think what he's thinking there is, it's not for you to covet. It's not for you to desire. Just leave that to the Father. He'll handle that. Well, the other disciples, the 10, as it says in verse 24, when they hear about it, they're indignant. And you want to know why? Because they wanted those seats. I have a feeling they were thinking, oh, man, I knew I should have gotten there before James and John. Um, But that that didn't matter. And so these words from Jesus that I think are so appropriate for us today, every bit as much as they were almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus called them together. Matthew 20, verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. This is how the world views greatness, Jesus says, and that's not how you should. This is how the world views power, and it's okay in the world, Um, but that's not how you should view it in the kingdom. Instead, he says, you need to be a servant. Not so with you, verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28 is one of those great purpose statements of Jesus. He says, you wanna know why I'm here? You don't know what I'm doing here? Here it is. The Son of Man came not to be served, and he had every right to be served. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And always, always, when Jesus tells us things like that, and when Matthew records things like that, it's with a purpose so that you and I will live that way ourselves. And so Jesus tells us look, in the world, greatness is measured by the people who have servants in the kingdom of Christ. Greatness is measured by the people who are the servants, who actually do the serving, why? Because that's what our Lord Jesus Christ did and he calls us to do the same. It's been a hard lesson for me and I know it's been a hard lesson for many of you and my heart goes out to you and um, um, I, I want you to know that we all struggle with these same things. And if I can help in any way, then reach out to me, reach out to someone else that you trust, that will guide you according to the word and will of God to do his will and, and get encouragement and get help and seek the path of the Lord, what Jesus called in the Sermon on the Mount, the narrow road, not the road that everybody in this country is on, that's the wide road, but the narrow road that leads to life for eternity, not just now and not just happiness, a true and enduring and eternal joy. I pray, I pray that you're on that path and, um, and that we'll all uh, get there. And I can tell you that when we do, it will only be because of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we just pray, giving you all the glory for the salvation that we have, the blessed assurance that we feel Because it's not certainly certainly not because of our lives. We're sinners. But it's because of the life and death and resurrection of your son. And because of him, Father, we have forgiveness. Because of him, we have a mission in this life. Because of him, uh, we have hope. Because of him, we have true and enduring and lasting and eternal joy. Through him, our Savior, our Lord. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you all.